Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of our OECD Education Podcast, Top Class. I'm Marilyn, editor at the OECD's Directorate for Education and Skills. During this year, the Program for International Student Assessment, or PISA, will be conducting its seventh round of tests of 15-year-old students around the world. In addition to assessing students' proficiency in reading, mathematics, and science, for the first time ever, PISA will examine how well students are prepared to live and succeed in today's global economy and in multicultural societies, what educators around the world have dubbed global competence. Andrea Schleicher, director of the OECD Directorate for Education and Skills, and Mario Piacentini, an analyst at the OECD who helped design the PISA test on global competence, are here to tell us what the term really means and how global competence can be measured. I'll also be speaking a little later with Tony Jackson, director of the Asia Society's Center for Global Education, which has a special focus on educating for global competence. First of all, thanks, Andreas and Mario, for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you. Andreas, can you tell us what you mean by global competence and why it's important for students? Global competence is the capacity of students to see the world from different perspectives, to engage with different views, with different cultures. In short, their capacity to capitalize on the diversity of the, of the world that is around them. Uh, why it's important for schools? Well, for children, school and youth, school is the first place where they actually encounter the diversity of our societies. They grow up in certain homes and certain environments, but in school they encounter people who think differently from them, who are differently from them, who may look differently from them, and their capacity to actually take value from this, to make sure that they can live with, work with others harmoniously is really, I think, a key asset for their own future in today's economy, which is very much about, you know, connecting the dots, uh, bringing together different ways of thinking, thinking across the boundaries of subject matter disciplines and thinking out of the box. I think it's very important in the economy. It's very important in our societies that are becoming increasingly diverse. Globalization used to be something for a small elite who travel internationally, Today, it's arrived on everybody's doorsteps. You turn on the television, you're going to see lots of things from all over the world. You know, you go into the supermarket, you see lots of products from all over the world. Mm -hmm. When you buy your own coffee here, that has huge implications for the economy in faraway countries and for the well-being of people over there. So understanding those kinds of interconnections is not a kind of nice to have. It's a must-have these days. But these kinds of things sound almost conceptual and theoretical, which leads me to the question, how is PISA going to measure these kinds of skills? It's different from measuring competence in mathematics or science. Mario, you helped prepare, you helped design this test. Can you give us some examples of what kinds of questions students will be asked or what kinds of tasks they will have to complete? Assessing global competence is, is more complicated than assessing mathematics or science, but we think it can be done. And our approach is quite straightforward. We think that global competence has a clear cognitive component that is about assessing whether information is reliable or just fake, understanding how people's worldviews and behaviors are influenced by their social or cultural context, and thinking about solutions for problems that are either local or global. And we assess those skills and the knowledge that people need to use in combination with those skills in our cognitive test. The test presents the students a case. It 
the stimulus could be a short extract from a, a newspaper or a short story involving people from different backgrounds, and then checks whether the students can understand the complexity of this case and the perspectives of the different people involved. For example, in one of the, of the scenarios we could present the case of a scientist who's arguing that global warming is just a myth because the global temperature in 2017 were the lowest registered over a decade. In these scenarios, we can assess whether students can figure out that evidence on global warming, a long-term phenomenon that is based on just 10 years of data, is not really solid, reliable. And you can also see whether students can look for additional information to validate or falsify the scientist's claim. In another scenario, we can present the case of a girl who gets offended because her origin country is presented with a lot of stereotypes in a textbook. And then we can assess whether the tested students can recognize these stereotypes in the book and understand the reaction of the girl. And the students over the one hour of the test are going to work on multiple scenarios that tap on different global issues or cultural issues and test like different skills that altogether make what we call global competence. But as Andreas said, like, global competence is not just about cognition. Of course, if you, if you don't know anything about the world or other culture, you can't be global competent. But this knowledge and understanding is instrumental to behaving in a certain way, interacting with other people with respect. And a central element of global competence is all the attitudes like openness to other culture or global-mindedness defined as a feeling, a sense of urgency to do something about the problems of the world. So we also assess these attitudes in our questionnaire. The questionnaire includes questions such as, for example, we ask the student to what extent they feel they treat all people the same way, regardless of their cultural background. And we know that there are issues with this type of self-reported data. Like one of the main problems is what we call social desirability bias, the fact that People tend to say about themselves things that they think are socially acceptable. But our intention with this questionnaire is not really to rank the countries on these measures, but rather to present a general view of what young people think about themselves, about other cultures, and about their role as, as citizens. Also trying to understand how certain activities that students do at school, like, for example, working on a group on a certain project and being asked by the teacher what they think about certain global events are related to these to this attitudes. So the questionnaire includes quite a lot of information on activities that students do at school and how their teachers teach these, um, these issues. In listening to what you're saying, I also it also sounds to me that we're talking about, as you're talking about, attitudes towards other people, openness towards other people. I think probably many of our listeners might have been brought up learning those kinds of things in their families and absorbing, seeing how their parents react, seeing how their other family members react. Andreas, given that, do you think that these kinds of skills and attitudes can actually be taught in a school? Should they be taught in a school? Are teachers even equipped to, to teach these kinds of things? Well, to some extent, they can be taught in school. To some extent, they are caught in school by the behavior that young people experience from, you know, their schoolmates, from their teachers. And there are great ways for how teachers can embed global competence in their teaching. This is not about an additional school subject. Think about foreign languages. I mean, languages are the windows to other cultures. What if we teach foreign languages with that in mind? We're sort of actually opening up. Uh, kind of the understanding of other cultures. History 
histories about how societies have built their narrative and how those narratives unravel over time. And again, it's a great way for actually you know, opening up new perspectives for young people to see different kind of ways of how societies have evolved, evolved around the world. Science is a great way to teach global competency. You know, scientists are, you know, working interconnected all around the world. So it's really about embedding that way of thinking into whatever we teach and however we teach. But I do think the behavioral component is very important. If you think, you know, in Japanese classrooms, students, you know, clean the classroom together with their teacher. And this is not because they can't afford a room cleaner. It is because that's something, you know, we, we are in this together. This mm -hmm. is our school. We are responsible for this. Uh, you have in other countries where, you know, stronger students have weaker students. All of those kinds of ways are, are ways to strengthen the capacity of young people to engage with diversity, to uh, to see themselves as part of a society. And I think there, there are many ways in which teachers can engage with this. It is demanding. You know, as a teacher, first of all, you have to understand the kind of cultural differences that you encounter in your classroom. Right. That is not something you can take for granted. But you go to Canada, uh, teachers are actually trained in those kinds of capacity to understand how to embed some of the cultural contexts in the curricular material so that those students find themselves represented, but also other students have an opportunity to learn about oh. the culture of the students they are working with. So there are so many ways in which this can be done by adding actually great value without taking anything away from mathematics, science, and other subjects. It seems to me, too, that, that what we're talking about here is, can be kind of sensitive. I'm wondering, we're talking about values of openness and, you know, being, being able to accept other cultures and other ways of living and ways of thinking. Can these kinds of things really be compared across countries and cultures? I mean, who gets to decide which values and attitudes are quote-unquote correct and can and should be adopted? Doesn't PISA risk imposing a certain kind of worldview and value systems that might not be acceptable to some people? Mario, do, would you like to speak to that? I see your point, and it's, uh, it's really a very important one. With this work, we are arguing that schools should help young people see the, the value and I would say the beauty, the richness of different perspectives and, and worldviews. If we ended up promoting Western-centric unilateral view of what is correct and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, then we would fail very badly. But I think that just arguing that values are central to the education project doesn't mean that we are negating diversity. And there are also risks with like endorsing an excessive relativism by which the world is so diverse that we can't even discuss about the values that education should promote. I think that the value of human dignity, as stated in Article 1 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights, is suffi sufficiently universal to serve as a guiding principle for many educators around the world who think that their role is not just to pass knowledge to the next generation, but really to form caring and responsible citizens. And these are not just Western concepts. We know that there are deep reflections on human dignity in many countries and cultures around the world. For example, the Southern African concept of Ubuntu emphasized connectedness, compassion, empathy. And these things are not just abstract. They have a very concrete meaning. What does it mean in practice to promote the value of human dignity at school? How can teachers be better prepared to prevent episodes of discrimination and humiliation at school like xenophobic comments, bullying, and isolation of certain groups. 
I think these are all questions that are worth asking, and we hope that through this work we can stimulate a very open, even controversial debate about what schools should and can do to help young people acquire some navigation tool to address ethical dilemmas, to be active, to protect other people's dignity, and to confront diversity in a positive way. In your question, you also mentioned that these things are very hard to measure and compare, and I, I would agree with that. With our questionnaire, I think we are doing just the first step. There are other possible methods like simulation through which we can collect possibly more reliable and comparable data, and, and we are working on that. But I think we should also consider that the framework we just published could be used as a reference, not just for an international summative assessment like PISA, but also for a broader range of assessments that are more formative in purpose. So, and are based like on conversation and observational students. And this kind of formative assessment in the domain of attitude and values can help teachers better understand the students, can help students to better understand themselves and improve the learning climate in the classroom. And talking about the classroom and the learning climate, Andreas, do you, how do you think PISA's emphasis on global competence is going to change curricula and classrooms around the world? Do you think it will? Well, it would certainly create awareness for these very important dimensions. You know, do young people have that kind of compass and the navigation tools to find themselves, you know, find their own way in an increasingly complex, volatile ambiguous world, living with different people, living with different cultures, I think it will show us to what extent young people are prepared for today's world. Now, the implications that policymakers are going to take away from this, you know, how should we reshape what students learn, how should we reshape how students learn, those may be varied across countries, and that's never the intention of, of PISA. PISA is really about creating awareness. How well do we live up to the requirements of tomorrow's society? And then, you know, people will take the lessons away from this. And I hope that's not just true for those who design tomorrow's curricula, but also for those who are actually in the classroom and have mm, to sort of yes. make this a reality. Teaching for Global Competence in a Rapidly Changing World is the title of a new report co-published by the OECD and the Asia Society. I caught up with Tony Jackson, director of the Asia Society's Center for Global Education, by phone. Tony, thanks very much for agreeing to speak with us. Oh, it's a great pleasure to speak with you. So can you tell us how essential is it that curricula around the world adopt a new globalized approach to learning? What's really at stake here? Well, I think really there are several key reasons why teaching for global competence becomes absolutely critical for every country. One is what you might think of as the economic imperative, um, jobs in a global economy. With globalization, we know that young people will, will be working in international companies, they'll be involved in international trade, they're collaborating with peers around the world on international ventures. And so these kinds of skills that enable them to work well with people from other cultures um, are going to be increasingly critical. And, and countries that realize that diversity and including dis different perspectives that really spark creativity and innovation, that's, that's what's going to drive economies forward. But what we also know is that given the current state of intercultural relations, it also demands greater global competence. Today, young people are growing up in communities that are becoming much more diverse due to unprecedented global migration. So education for global competence really can promote the kind of intercultural understanding and, and, and respectful interactions that are really essential in increasingly diverse societies. You know, we've seen an explosion of, of indiscriminate violence in the name of religious or ethnic affiliation, and 
it really makes it clear that for young people to live peacefully in, in, in kind of close proximity to each other, these capacities to accept differences and find common solutions and effectively resolve disagreements become absolutely critical. And, and, and those are really key parts of global competence. And then just quickly to, 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 to say that, um, you know, the sustainability of our planet and, and the people on it really demands global competence. Um, global competence education is really required to achieve the, the UN sustainable, sustainable Development Goals. And among those goals are, are finding solutions to climate change and uh, economic inequality and, and peace and social justice. So we need young people that understand the, the kind of interconnectedness and the interdependence of environmental and social and technological systems and to be able to uh, understand and solve these critical global issues that really threaten the existence of everyone. So all of these be really become um, critical reasons why including global competence within the curriculum becomes imperative for any country. And obviously, there, there are very uh, concrete, practical reasons why, why something as theoretical sounding as global competence is, is an urgent need right now. And the report, I understand, includes a number of examples from teachers around the world who are already taking steps to make their students think more globally, more internationally. Can you give us a few examples of those that, in your opinion, stand out the most? Well, a few that come to mind that really, I think, speak to the different ways in which teachers have found to teach with global competence. Um, I'll just start with one, a teacher in Bergen, Nor Norway, who, who uh, really has shown how you can expand how you teach by reaching out to others within the world to include that in your teaching. She often starts with having her students research an issue and then formulate questions, but then, then she has them engage in discussions through their computers with people from different cultures. Um, it all got started when um, the students had read a, a, an article in a local newspaper about the challenges that girls routinely face in some parts of India to get, get an education. And so they, they did the research um, through newspaper accounts and videos and so on, but then they they actually contacted an all-girls school in India to get firsthand their impression of, of what it's like to, to try to get an education um, as a girl. And so since then, she's had her students talk to police officers in Chicago, to, to politicians in New York, to Russian grandparents who lived through the Cold War, and, and people in South Africa who lived through apartheid. So these kinds of experiences really go a long way in developing empathy and, and new perspectives. And and to really understand how to speak with people and to listen to people sensitively who are from other backgrounds. Another example that comes to mind, I think, that really shows how global competence is about making a difference in the world as well as learning about the world, comes from Mexico, a teacher who wanted her students to really learn about the rule of law within a democratic society. And so as part of a unit on how to evaluate political or social challenges, she had her students create a survey that she had them administer within both a relatively affluent community and then with a relatively low-income community about people's attitudes and experiences with corruption. And she kind of very surprisingly found that 75% of the people in both places had been victims of corruption, but, but may not even, had not even realized it until they took the survey and, and it brought to their attention. So she also found that, that most of them hadn't done anything about it, that they felt powerless or, or didn't know how to make an effective complaint. So the students themselves came up with a plan to reduce corruption and, and presented that directly to local officials. And, and they used their knowledge to make their voices heard and, and through that make a real difference in their communities. So there's lots and lots of examples of that, of teachers finding ways um, to be able to, to make global competence happen for their students. Do you know whether this kind of, this is being taught in teacher training courses already? Or are teachers getting exposed to, to how to approach this very important issue? 
Well, I think what we see in the report are kind of myriad examples of really kind of ingenious uh, entrepreneurial teachers who really are doing this to a large extent on their own. There are there are some programs that are helping teachers develop these capacities to teach for global competence, but one of the real main findings of the report, I would say, is that there is a real need for systematic professional learning for teachers in order to help them develop their capacity to develop global competence in youth. And, and, and we do know that there are very specific kinds of instructional strategies that really are those that can develop these competencies in youth. Um, everything from you know, very well-organized discussions where the teacher is able to stimulate a very uh, respectful but truthful dialogue between individuals from different cultures around a, a global issue to structured debate where really, you know, they, young people can take two different sides of uh, issues such as, you know, whether or not free trade is good for everyone or, or, or poverty is inevitable, taking these kinds of critical issues and looking at it from both sides. I think, though, that from our perspective, the instructional strategy that is really going to make a huge difference that really needs to be incorporated into teaching very systematically is what's called project-based learning. And, and here I'm talking about uh, organizing student learning around sustained inquiry on a significant global issue. Um, I'll just give you an example quickly. This one comes from the United States where a teacher developed a project in which he asked his students to research a religious issue in a global context. And as part of that issue for research, for example, they had to connect with someone who actually knew about or was of the faith that they were, they were uh, researching. And so through the basis of their research and then um, uh, getting that, uh, that research and their conclusions critiqued by the person who was knowledgeable about that issue, that, that faith, they then were producing a, an authentic product of understanding that, that isn't necessarily just an answer to a multiple, ch- a multiple choice course. It's, it's really something like a, a written paper or an awareness campaign or a children's book, something that really of their own choosing reflects their knowledge applied to a critical global issue. So we think that project-based learning is essential, but again, that's an instructional strategy that does require professional learning, and which is why we at the Center for Global Education at Asia Society have worked so hard over the last 15 years to develop teacher training strategies on the strategies that develop global competence, including project-based instruction. And we're very excited right now because we've uh, recently digitize this huge body of knowledge and resources we have around teacher training for global competence um, into a series of online workshops uh, in conjunction with Arizona State University will allow access to teachers worldwide to the kind of systematic professional learning they need to teach for global competence. But it is a really important need, and we hope that we can contribute through our online teacher professional development resources to solving that problem for teachers worldwide. Thank you very, very much for taking the time to speak with me, Tony, and best of luck. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity. Okay, well, we've just about run out of time, unfortunately, but I want to thank Andreas, Mario, and Tony for speaking with us. And thanks to everyone for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe and follow the OECD Education Twitter account, which can be found at OECD EduSkills. You can also get expert analysis on all sorts of education topics on our Education and Skills Today blog at OECD Education Today, all one word, dot blogspot.com. Thank you very much again and see you next time.